0: Hey there, what are you doing?
1: Just looking at birds.
0: Welcome. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. to the last episode this one will consist of recommendations shared by my guests from the first eight episodes with a focus on bird identification jenny tells us a little bit about field guides
2: so there's a lot of different book options out there a lot of different book options and part of the reason there's so many is because different people like different things so some are illustrated guides some are photo guides but in my opinion, if you're a new birder, you really want to go with a guide that's limited to your regional area. So here in Tucson, I tell people to get the you know the Birds of Southeast Arizona book. It's a mm. small, uh, little red book. Um, it's pocket-sized, and it has. All the birds, pretty much of Southeast Arizona, in there, which I think is really good for beginning birders, because it eliminates those really confusing look-alike species hmm. that don't occur in this region. Which, when you look at a whole book, you know, a book of all the birds of the West, you'll notice like the impitnax flycatchers all look very similar, and it can get really overwhelming and confusing for new birders if they don't initially understand that a lot of those birds only occur in very specific areas. So even yeah. though they look very similar, you're not likely to encounter them together. So that really helps, I think, to get a regional book. But if you're going to be moving beyond that and wanting a book that is for a whole, like, half of the country, even the whole continent so that you can, you know, travel around and all the birds will be in there, I do prefer the Sibley bird ID books. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have different preferences. Sibley uses illustrations. So oh. if you prefer photos, if that works better for you, just just go with what you like. There's a reason birders have whole shelf fulls of <laughs> bird ID
0: books. Based on Jenny's recommendation, I picked up The Birds of Southeastern Arizona by Richard Taylor. While I'll share a comparison between the popular West Coast guides from National Geographic and Sibley later in this episode, compared to those, this guide provided actual pictures of the birds, more specific information about the bird's behavior, and whether a particular bird was a resident or migrant, including the cities and elevations where the bird might be found in Southeast Arizona. Guides like these are valuable for their more specific information, and as Jenny said, their inclusion of birds you are most likely to see in the area. When I visited Texas earlier this year, I bought the Birds of Texas Field Guide by Stan. I'll probably mispronounce this last name, but because of the IE, I'll assume an E sound and say tequila. So, Stan Tequila. And this guide is similar to the one from Richard Taylor in size the specific information that is provided, and the actual pictures of birds. But it also includes information about nesting, eggs, incubation, and fledging. While the range maps did not include elevation, they were helpful with setting my expectations for the birds I might see when visiting a particular part of Texas. When you visit a new place, if a state-specific guide is available, I would highly recommend it, if you don't already rely on a particular app. Marsha talks about what she uses, since she doesn't like carrying much with her when she goes birding. And Ray talks about the value of practice and taking notes.
3: I don't like carrying things with me. Mm -hmm. And I, so I don't carry a field guide with me at all. I have one on my phone. I actually have three. I have a Sibley's regular field guide for the entire of North America. Okay. Then I have a guide to warblers and a guide to hummingbirds. Okay. And they're all on my phone. And the guide to warblers is very interesting because it's three-dimensional. You can mm. turn the bird and uh-huh. look underneath and look on top. Because warblers you often see from the bottom. Yes. As they're hopping around in a tree. So you look at their backside rather than their topside. Mm. So those are the those are my favorite field guides. And I do have a couple Printed ones that I carry in the car, mm-hmm. just in case I am absolutely stumped. Yeah, that's another thing for new birders. Sometimes you won't figure out what you're looking at. It's okay. You don't have to identify every bird you see.
4: I mentioned to you prior to, to our formal conversation that one of my nicknames for myself is 20th century man because uh, you know a lot of the latest technology. I, I, I'm not. I'm not what you call a rapid adapter. So, and this answer kind of. Ref- Reflects that in a way. But I think it is important to to note, I think having a real good bird guide, you know, even, I'll, I'll be specific. I, I, a lot of the guides are really good. I, I have many guides at home, and that sure. Geo, National Geographic is excellent. But I think Sibley's, uh, the large volume Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly good for like beginner birders or early on birders and how it distinguishes itself from some of the others is for each species, he'll often, depending on the bird, he can have three, four, five, six illustrations of a bird, right? And if you think about it, birds... Often their plumage is different depending on whether they're male or female, Mm -hmm. whether they're juvenile or adult. Mm -hmm. There are different subspecies across the country of the same uh, species. And there are other guides that are good. There's one specific guide of Southeast Arizona, which Mm. is a very good guide and has good things about it. But for many of the birds, it has one photo of the bird. Mm. And uh, for birds that, you know— uh, male and female, it's it can be confusing because the bird we're seeing right now does not match the picture. Sure. So I do think that Sibley's guide is a really excellent investment. Uh, it's a go-to book. It's not something you carry out in the field with you because it's too big. Yes. But it's good to go back to it after you've done a bird walk, or or you've uh, you know uh, missed something, or you want to see something. Or I keep it in my car oftentimes, mm-hmm. um, just so that. You know, I'm not walking around carrying it, but when I get back to the car, I can look in it. So, yeah, again, that's old school. It's uh, it's printed page. But I think, you know, in this age where we are into our smartphones, which is great, have no problem with that, we don't want to overlook that something can be comprehensive and really good. So uh, I really like recommending that to people. Occasionally, uh, I'll get a beginner-type question from somebody, Mm -hmm. and I'll ask, oh, do you have that? And they'll say no, and um, they would have maybe gotten an answer to their question if they did have it. So,
0: Mm. yeah. That's one of the reasons I enjoyed the Sibley Guide. I have the West Coast version, and I appreciated having the different variations. Because then if I took a picture of a particular bird, I could compare it to these variations and identify, okay, it was an immature male version of this bird. Uh, so I found that very helpful. Sure.
4: So to be clear, you know, the Sibley comes in two forms, mm-hmm. and uh, the smaller east coast and eastern and western, which can fit into your pocket and are good for bringing out in the field. And I actually, when I do bird walks, I do bring the western one in. Okay. I wear a vest, and I find a vest really helpful as a bird leader sure. because, uh, you know, I have my cell phone here. I do do eBird and so, but I don't. I don't like doing eBird while I'm leading a walk. It's yeah. just it, it, my my eyes are being taken off the birds too much. Yes, but I do know their four letter abbreviation, so I just have a little pad and pencil here. My uh, smartphone. I I have a guide because sometimes we'll see something, and you don't get always get the most perfect look, and mm-hmm. so. I'll open the book and show people, and they really appreciate that. So, uh, and then there's an Eastern version of that. But my original point really had to do with the large volume.
0: Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. On the topic of notes, since I usually have my phone with me, I'll create a quick note with some visual descriptors and if I was able to see the bird in motion. I can mention that and finally the habitat where I saw it. This is very similar to what eBird asks for when you are trying to identify an unknown bird. And if you can hear that scratchy call in the background, there's a pair of small net catchers that are hanging out in some brush nearby. Dan talks about learning from other birders and why he uses certain apps instead of others.
4: When I started out, uh, of course, we didn't have cell phones that that (laughs) brought encyclopedias with them. And so I would refer to bird books. Uh, I'm more of a learner uh, by by talking to people and listening to people. It's easier for me to take in information that way. So for me, it was understanding how I learn. You know, I would take some notes in the field, go and look at books. Now, uh, what I find real easy is having a few apps on my phone that I can go to. And so if I have a question about a bird or a bird sound or, or something, I can access that information very, very quickly. And Uh, So that's what I use to help me when I'm out and about in the field.
0: While I'm not often able to bird with more experienced birders, the few times I have, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. When trying to learn about a particular bird, it was very helpful being able to ask a number of questions about what we just saw to better understand the bird, as opposed to just taking notes and referencing field guides at home. Much of the identification covered so far has emphasized what we see. Prudy talks about the value of listening to birds.
5: I really like to encourage younger birders and young people, my grandchildren, to listen to what the bird says. If you can be a birder by ear, Mm. you are a far superior birder than anybody who birds by sight. Mm. Because birding sounds, the sounds, songs, and calls that birds make are distinctive. They're much more distinctive than coloration or size or anything, uh, even habitat, because birds mm. could be out of place. Mm. They can be uh, molting. They can be in their breeding plumage or not. And so birds can vary in terms of what they look like. But yeah. birds never vary in terms of what they sound like. You can oh. always tell the difference between one flycatcher and the other, even if they're almost identical by the way they sound. And this mm. this couple of days ago, we were down in the, the Chiricahuas. Mm-hmm. And in the meadows there, we saw meadowlarks, and one was on a fence and we could hear it singing, and we said, whoa, that does not sound like our familiar western meadowlark. And we said, oh, that's because that's an eastern meadowlark. Well, we Mm. probably would never have known had we not heard it. If you could identify a bird, like, I I recognize like that bird that we're hearing here that is the uh, bells vireo. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a bells vireo. Well, you may not see anything, but sooner or later you will see something moving, and then you can identify the bird. And if you can identify a bird by sound, and call first you will see far more birds than waiting until you have to sight them because mm. they just often don't let themselves be seen but they will be calling especially in the spring
0: without really intending to do so I built a foundational bird called bank of sorts in my mind by paying attention to the birds around my home and where I work since I'm around them frequently and I can usually see the birds making the calls I think the Lesser Goldfinch was one of the first that I could identify by call alone, out and about, beyond my home or work. When out birding, if I hear a familiar call that I've yet to visually ID, I'll record the call with my phone and take note of the habitat where I heard it. For example, I heard northern cardinals multiple times from areas of thicker brush before I found out that they were the ones making that sound. Sometimes I'll just record unfamiliar calls and the next time I visit that place, if I hear the call again and am able to get a visual ID, I'll name the recording so that I don't forget. That way I have a small collection of recordings on my phone of local birds, which is helpful if someone I know mentions hearing a call, because I have a few likely options to share with them. This process has also helped me cement some of my learning about these birds. Now, if I hear a northern cardinal, I have a pretty good idea of where the sound might be coming from, and can get closer to catch a glimpse of it. While I enjoy my collection of sounds and pictures, one of the most comprehensive resources available, for free, is eBird. There are multiple apps and a website, and Holly tells us all about them.
1: Well, let me tell you a little bit about what eBird is first. So, Cornell Lab of Ornithology in New York uh, is one of the foremost schools of ornithology in the world. And they developed this database where Anybody and everybody can log their bird checklists into their database. And now they're getting millions and millions of checklists every year. And what that's doing is all these volunteers, all these citizen scientists that are out there inputting their personal bird sightings into eBird, they have this huge knowledge of birds and they're able to map them and follow them and track them and track trends that they couldn't do before. Um, and it's open to anybody. It's not just for expert birders. It's for the new birders as well as the expert birders. You only put in the birds that you can positively identify. So if you go out and you see a dozen species of birds and you can identify three of them, you just put in the three. So it's for everybody, and then every area where you're birding has a volunteer reviewer. So if you do a really drastic mistake, it's going to get caught, and they're going to send you a very polite email saying you might consider this and that and you'll either change your checklist or you might just revise that species or remove that species. So you give back to the community when you put your data into eBird. What you get back out is you've got a list of all of your birds, plus they've got tools for finding the birds that you want to see. So it used to be if you were keeping a bird list, you might have to keep a list for your county, and then you might keep a list for the U.S., and you might keep a list for the world. And if you wanted to do that all in one list, you'd have to have an access database with pivot tables and all this kind of (laughs) stuff to keep track of it. And it was a real pain in the patootie. But now you go into eBird and you can just put in their filter and it will bring you up your, here we are in Pima County, it'll bring up your Pima County list for life. Hmm. It'll bring up your Pima County list for this year. You can go back and see what your Pima County list was for 2018. You can compare your world list. Then you can go in if you're a competitive person like me, you can go into the top 100 birders for Pima County and you can see what your ranking is and see if you can climb your way up into the top 10 of the Mm. Pima County birders. And you don't have to be an expert birder to do it. You can be a hobby birder like me. You can be a bird enthusiast and make your way into the top 10. And that's fun when you add that little competitive thing in there.
0: So it sounds like for those that really want to get into birding, who want to track what they've seen, it's a great way to track that, but also have a list that goes with you so I don't have to keep track of a notebook. I can just do this on my phone. I can have this along when I'm out and about in the field. And also, if I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum where I'm not really seeking out birds, but I want to track the occasional bird and I might make a mistake, there's still fail safes in place to make sure that doesn't negatively affect the community. And it also is kind of like a teachable moment for me. Yes. So I can learn a little bit about that bird at that time. Because I'm guessing they'll give a suggestion of another bird, then I might look at it and say, oh yeah, it did have a yellow beak, and maybe make a correction.
1: The best way to figure out about eBird, it's hard to do with a podcast. I do teach classes on eBird. For those folks that are less than Gen X, if they're going to log into eBird, and it's just going to make sense to them, it's all going to be intuitive. If you're a little more intimidated by the website, if you go into eBird, set up yourself a profile, You don't even have to start doing checklists. There are tools to find birds and look at pictures of birds in there. And if you want to find out how to do that, you click the help tab. And unlike a lot of websites, that help tab is really well done. And they've got all these really nice little video clips. There's a video clip on what is eBird. There's one called um, introduction to eBird. There's one how to do eBird on your Android phone. There's one to do eBird, do a checklist on your iOS phone. There's a free course that's three hours long that's called eBird Essentials. You can sign up for that. You can watch it at your own pace and really learn what eBird is and what it can do for you. Hmm. But it's really two parts. It's how to keep track of the birds you've seen. And it's also got so many tools under the Explore tab on how to find the birds that you want to see or how to figure out what birds you should be looking for. So eBird is just really, really fun. It'll take your birding to a whole other level.
0: Are there any drawbacks to using only the app or only the website?
1: They are two different things. Okay. The eBird website is the whole suite of the tools that are available. The eBird app, the primary purpose of it is so that you can log a checklist in the field. Okay. So that equates to the submit tab in the website. There's the my eBird tab, which is where you can see all of your lists and all of your sightings. And you can sort and filter that every which way from Sunday. There's the Explore tab where you can go and you can look at pictures of birds. You can look at what birds are at hotspots. You can find out what hotspots are around you. Anyway, there's a series of tabs. And there's the Submit tab. Hmm. The Submit tab is how you submit a checklist on the website. What the eBird app is primarily for is for the Submit tab. It allows you to enter birds in real time uh, when you're in the field.
0: Okay. That sounds like a tool I might try to use.
1: I highly recommend it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: To add to what Holly mentioned, my favorite use for eBird is to locate birding hotspots, which are basically locations that have had a large number of bird sighting submissions. After a few taps, you'll have a pretty good idea of the birds that are most commonly seen at a given location. I especially like exploring eBird hotspots when I'm in a new city or visiting a place I haven't been to in a while to help plan my outing. Earlier I mentioned a comparison of two popular field guides. While I eventually purchased both, I was initially torn between which of these two I should buy. When I first started out, after looking around on Amazon, I decided on the National Geographic Field Guide to the Birds of Western North America. I initially spent some time just leafing through it to learn about the birds I had already seen, and to familiarize myself with birds that I might see, shortly after I picked up the Sibley Field Guide to Birds of Western Northern America, and used it in a similar way. On my next few birding outings, each time I saw a new bird, I would come back and consult both books to identify it. While I think there is value in having both of these field guides, if you are newer to birding and considering picking up just one of these, I think you might find the following comparison helpful. When looking at both field guides, I decided to compare them based on three categories, navigation, bird information, and additional information. Navigation consists of how easy it is to find what you are looking for in the guide. In the National Geographic guide, on the inside jacket flap, you will see a quick-find index, which is an alphabetical listing, and as far as specificity, it lies somewhere between bird families and individual species. For example, some of the entries are dove, finch, and wren. Opening that flap reveals a visual index to bird families, which includes some members of each family. This extends to the back inner flap of the book as well. This is something I found very helpful as a new birder, not knowing the visual characteristics of each family or which birds belong to which family. Within the guide, birds are organized into sections based on their bird families, and the first page of each one includes a very small introduction to the family. For example, in the section for woodpeckers and allies, it mentions the scientific family name, and then says, Strong claws, short legs, and stiff tail feathers enable woodpeckers to climb tree trunks. Sharp bill is used to chisel out insect food and nest holes to drum a territorial signal. So just some quick information about the family. If you know you saw a woodpecker of some sort, you could visit the quick find index or content section organized by family to find the page. If you think it was a Gila woodpecker, you could visit the alphabetical species list at the back of the book. To review, there is a visual index to bird families and the content section organized by family, the quick find index that is a little more specific, and then the species list at the back of the guide. One other thing I forgot to mention about navigation This guide includes six thumb tabs for some popular groups, such as sparrows and hawks. In the Sibley Guide, similar to the National Geographic Guide, birds are grouped into sections based on their bird families. While the first page or two of each section introduces that family, the Sibley Guide includes illustrations of all the birds within that family organized by genus, along with a larger, more descriptive paragraph of information. This is similar to the visual index to bird families, but it is more comprehensive and specific, since it includes all members of the family instead of just a sampling. With the Sibley Guide, if you are looking for an unknown woodpecker, you could visit the contents page for a list of bird families, or the back of the book for that same list of families including lists of all the members within each. You could also visit the first page of the woodpecker's section for illustrations of all the woodpeckers, or finally, the alphabetical species index at the back of the book. To review, there is the contents page with the list of bird families at the back of the book. There is the list of bird families and their members, along with an alphabetical species list right after. Based on navigation alone, the National Geographic Guide is easier to navigate for someone who is brand new to birding because of the quick-find index and the visual index of bird families. Having the families all in one place makes it easy to distinguish them and quickly find the possible family of a bird you're trying to identify. The second category for comparison will be the actual information provided about the birds. Both guides provide illustrations of male and female birds, similarly detailed range maps, sound or call descriptions, and similar birds to a given bird. Both mention differences from the eastern counterparts of certain birds as well. The National Geographic Field Guide provides greater detail about the geographical location of a given bird, often with state-specific information. It also provides more detail regarding the habitats within which birds are found. While both provided illustrations to distinguish males and females, this guide provided specific written details focused on the differences. The Sibley guide provided information about the bird's diet and where it might forage along with how many you might find together. While both provide illustrations of male, female, and juvenile, Sibley includes breeding and non-breeding along with the dates for each. For example, a juvenile American robin is listed as May to September. This is helpful when seeing a bird during this time that may look different from what you are used to. Based on the information provided for each bird, it's a toss-up between the more detailed habitat description in the National Geographic Guide and the increased number of illustration variations and inclusion of diet in the Sibley Guide. I'll give the edge to the Sibley Guide for the additional visual information that requires fewer assumptions on the part of a new birder. Although this also relies on the birder having a very clear visual of the bird to be able to distinguish between the plumage variations, without that clear visual, I would call it a draw between the two guides in this category. The last category of comparison will be the additional information provided. Both guides provide information on the classification of birds, learning to identify birds and diagrams of the parts of birds for different birds, for example, shorebirds and songbirds. At first glance, the headings and brevity of the information at the beginning of the National Geographic Guide appear to be catered to new birders, but the language within each of these sections is equally accessible to new birders in both guides. Sibley Guide covers similar topics, but goes into much more detail. This is true for the written information as well as the bird part diagrams, as there are a greater number of them. On the inside of the front cover, Sibley also provides a key to understanding each bird information page which includes a ruler on the actual page, to help a newer birder visualize the size of some smaller birds. I like how Sibley covers the topics of psychological effects and mistakes, as well as ethics, to provide the reader with a broader way to think about birding. From the perspective of a new birder, I think both guides are equally approachable, as far as the additional information provided. While each provides different quantities of information, I believe they are both accessible to new birders. Here again, I think it is more or less a draw. Considering the three categories, the advantage goes to the National Geographic Guide for navigation of the actual guide, but then there is a draw in the categories of bird information and additional information. For a brand new birder, I don't think you can go wrong with either guide, and I think you'd benefit from owning both. While it was not intentional, I bought the National Geographic Guide first and the Sibley Guide a few months later. I would recommend this same progression. I think you'll have a greater appreciation for what the Sibley Guide has to offer, after owning the National Geographic one, as it will have prepared you for navigating the Sibley Guide. These days I reference my Sibley Guide almost exclusively, but once in a while if I want to see if there's something the Sibley Guide missed, I'll bring out the National Geographic Guide. While there's not a clear-cut choice here, I hope this comparison has helped you better understand some of the traits of each field guide. Looking at the bigger picture, and considering what bird identification tool you'll use, it really comes down to what you are most comfortable with. You need some form of data collection, a picture, audio, notes, or just your memory, and then some way to make sense of the data you've collected, a field guide, birding apps, or eBird, or even an experienced bird or friend. As far as visual identification is concerned, a picture requires the least amount of blanks to be filled, as it will give you a look at many of the bird's colors, field marks, and the habitat around it. The most valuable tool I've found has been my camera with a large telephoto lens, Outside of delivering some great pictures, it provides me with the detail necessary to identify unfamiliar birds. Out in the field, I've had pretty spotty cell coverage, so I don't like relying on apps. Instead, I'll take pictures, record a voice memo, or take down a few details in my notes app. With that combination of information, sitting down with a cup of coffee and a few field guides, I can usually identify the unfamiliar bird. Once I've done that, I can submit it to eBird. Thank you for listening. And I hope this episode will help you find some tools that work for you. Some tools that will help you identify and learn more about birds. The next episode will focus on some recommendations for items under $100 that will have a positive impact on your birding experience. As I mentioned last episode, my goal is to return to the interview format at the end of this month. As always, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let others know by leaving a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also let me know by emailing me at Chris at chrisatlookingatbirds.com. Until next time, keep looking at birds.